Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Civil Discourse, your local news source for local, global, and political news on a small scale. I'm your host, Calvin, and I'm joined with someone very special to me today. But before we get started, I just wanted to give you a reminder that the Student Spin Podcast is a sister media to the Six Mile Post newspaper at Georgia Highlands College here in Rome, Georgia. The views of this podcast do not reflect those of the Six Mile Post or Georgia Highlands College. Hey, guys, happy Wednesday. Hope you're having a great day out there. I'm excited to get started with today's pod. But before we get started, I want to introduce a new co-host, my friend Damien. Say hi to the folks out there, Damien. Hi. First of all, who are you? What was that voice you just did? <laughs> what do you mean the voice that I just did? <laughs> you put on this like announcer voice all of a sudden as soon as we started. Yeah, that's called podcasting. For those of you out there that don't know, and why would you know, uh, Timmy and I have been friends going on two years now. Uh, so we have a lot of a lot of fun times with each other, poking and prodding. It's mostly one-sided, but that's fine, I guess. That's fine. It's fine. It's whatever. <laughs> so how are you today, Damien? I'm really good. You know, I had to go to Walmart, which always stresses me out. Um, but other than that, I'm fine. How are you? How are you doing? I'm fine. I've, I've had a great day, too. I, I'm really excited to start doing this podcast with you as my co-host, because you and I... Uh, argue with each other a lot about politics and things that aren't so political. And I think it's just going to be a really great time. Yes, I can't wait. Thank you for asking me. You know, there's nothing more I love in life than uh, arguing. So I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to get started with our first story, we're going to talk about something on a national scale. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I've talked about how CNN is kind of my go-to news source. And there was a story written by Whitney Wilde and Paula Blanc, who are CNN reporters, that the title of this piece was U.S. Capitol Police Whistleblower Alleges Leadership Failures on January 6th. Uh, Damien, are you aware of what happened on January 6th? <laughs> no, I've been living under a rock. I have okay. no clue. Okay, awesome. No, so, I'm kidding. Yes, I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they published this article yesterday on Sunday, and it was updated at 11.22 p.m. last night, but it's basically about a, like, a high-ranking U.S. Capitol Police officer saying that the department's leadership before, during, and after was just kind of not there at all and they knew a little bit about what was going on and chose to let it happen anyway what do you have to say about that yeah i mean i think it was clear that there was some sort of lack of leadership or some sort of breach in leadership from the very beginning of it i mean it was one of the really one of the only domestic terror events that i can remember in my lifetime on u.s soil especially at that level because it was at the um, u.s capitol and the fact that the rioters were able to make it inside the Capitol building, I think told us really all we needed to know about the leader or the security that was lacking, um, which is really upsetting because I feel like something we've always prided ourselves on here in the country is how well we protect our monuments and how well we protect our, especially our federal buildings. Um, so to see something like that happen was very unnerving, but I also felt that it was interesting that we maybe talked about it for a week or two and then the story went away and then nothing happened ever, it, um, which I thought was really interesting and kind of a condemnation of the media, in my opinion. What do you think? So I think that, you know, I, I followed it from the time it started till about four weeks afterwards. And it was kind of crazy to see people saying, oh, yeah, this is a liberal, like staunch attack, like and posting videos specifically. I would like to point out the Q shaman, the guy that was walking around with like a buffalo head. Uh, That's an icon. Can we talk about it? 
I refuse to give someone like him icon status. <laughs> um, so I remember people being like, oh, he shows up at all these liberal events and like there are specific photos that were cropped. And I was like, well, damn, like how am I, how am I gonna combat what they're saying? And then someone was like, no, 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 no. If you're gonna post all those photos, you have to post the rest of them. And it was like photos of him supporting QAnon thoughts and ideologies. And it, it came out that this was mostly like a terror attack that was incited by a speech that Donald Trump gave. And so then uh, it, it just baffled me that we as a country would allow that to happen. And in this article uh, with the whistleblower that they talked to, it says that uh, Pittman and Gallagher, the people who were you know in charge of the situation, basically just their direct quote for this whistleblower was what I observed was them mostly sitting there blankly looking at TV screens, showing real time footage of the officers and officials fighting for the Congress and their lives. And that's kind of, that's kind of hard to read and believe at the same time, if that makes any sense. It was, it, yeah, it was definitely haunting. I mean, I think we heard AOC talk about how she had to hide in an office to make sure that no one found her. And I think it came out a few weeks after that, don't quote me on this, but that um, some of the writers were targeting Nancy Pelosi's office. And there's actually pictures of some of them in Nancy Pelosi's office, um, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. I think really honestly, what the event signaled was that there was kind of a shift in the way we think about terrorism also. Usually when you think about terrorism, you think about an event like 9-11 or the Boston bombing. Um, something from usually like an outside force is what we as Americans usually consider terrorism. But I think what it shifted, especially in the last election was that terrorism now is really pushing some sort of fake ideology or radicalizing an entire base of people to question the norms and traditions that we have in the country. So not only was an attack on our, obviously a physical building, but I think it was an attack on everything that we've ever prided ourselves on standing for. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely makes sense because I agree that like the people that are causing these events, um, the people that are causing these events are the people that claim the rights that they're fighting against or what they're fighting for. Right, right. It was almost like they were um, hurting, to use the Pokemon reference, hurting themselves in confusion because they were fighting because they thought the election was rigged or that they thought there was some sort of scam at that um, federal level, when really when you'd make some sort of attack like that against your own country, you're only going to worsen the conditions of the country that you're living in. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree. Um, and, and speaking of, you know, conditions worsening, I, I want to talk a little bit about climate change and the energy. What a segue! It, 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 I, I am famous for that. That was powerful. That was really powerful. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> I hate you. That was wow. I am crying. <laughs> it was a good segue, and then you ruined it. <laughs> it was so powerful. I wanted to point it out to everybody how powerful it was. <laughs> All right, so I want to talk about an article that I found that, that is titled Gas Prices Skyrocket as the Global Energy Crisis Worsens. And it's written by Matt Egan, a, a, a reporter for CNN Business that I regularly talk about on the podcast. Uh, it was written today and updated as of 2.57 p.m. And it said the cost of energy was dirt cheap in spring 2020 as roads and airports sat nearly empty during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
it goes on to talk about how, you know, the world's reopening again, but somehow this energy supply can't keep up anymore. And that's why oil prices have like gone through the roof, almost $120 and to negative $40, like a barrel of oil in April, 2020. So it's leading to a lot of financial problems, which is causing gas prices to skyrocket. Well, um, and as somebody who, you know, my car, Damien, I have to fill up every other <laughs> five days. Your um, diesel truck of a car. Yeah, my diesel truck Toyota. It's crazy that I'm having to spend $3.27 a gallon when back when the pandemic started, it was like $1.77. Yeah, nothing. Yes, queen, give us nothing. <laughs> nothing, give us nothing gas. Yes, oil. <laughs> Come on, oil, let's get crude. Um. (laughs) I am officially resigning from the podcast. Shut up. (laughs) So I guess I have to say, um, what do you think about the global energy crisis in the state it's in if it's already causing gas prices to skyrocket on a crude oil we really shouldn't be using anyway? Oh my God, I have so many things to say about this. Number one, I think the fact that we are in 2021 still relying on um, fossil fuels, crude oils to power our engines, power our cars, boats, you name it, whatever. We're using these oils that are, as you know, non-renewable. I mean, once they're gone, they're gone. So at some point, it's going to get to the point where we have to find a way to move past this and think of alternative energies. But I think it's really sad that we as a world haven't invested more in like electric powered vehicles because they are more efficient and they are something that we do have the capability to produce at the moment. Um, but I think the larger climate issue of this is until we take money out of politics and until we quit treating corporations as people who are allowed to essentially buy politicians, um, I don't think we're ever really gonna make any real process in the whole climate change issue because what we have now is the fossil fuel industry can lobby politicians. And obviously if you're a politician getting $20 million in campaign financing from, I don't know, a fossil fuel company, are you really gonna push to eradicate that fossil fuel company? No. So until we can address that issue, I think it's kind of frivolous to even talk about climate change in terms of like what we can do to fix it. Cause I mean, us as individuals, what power do we really have? I would like to say little to none because of, you know, my personality. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's like, it, I, I, I like the way that you said we pay politicians to speak about certain things or those companies do. And that holds a lot of weight and power because I can remember reading articles last year saying that solar power energy is ready to go on on a mass scale, but it's not being used or thought about at the forefront. Right, like the cleanest and most efficient source of energy that we have in the entire world is literally just right above us in the sky, the sun. It's not something we'd ever actually have to pay for or try to renew. Exactly, unless they want to start taxing us for sudden prices. <laughs> Tax the sun. That'll be next. Just wait. Just wait. It's on. It's on the agenda. But I also don't like that the agenda or kind of the messaging of the whole climate crisis is that we as consumers, or that we as individuals, are responsible for carrying the burden of it. Because, like I said, I mean, we can reduce the amount of single-use plastic we use. We can try to conserve water. 
none of that really matters unless there's some sort of global initiative to fix the issue. Because we as individuals have very, very little power, not only politically, but, you know, in terms of the environment. And, you know, speaking of an environment, we we sort of create an environment, whether it's social or <laughs> just, you know, in our own space. And, and I want to talk about the environment that's kind of being culminated in Sydney, Australia right now with their their approach to COVID and the new variants, because, you know, I, I I like to talk about COVID at least once a week if I can, because it's something that's still prevalent and very much going on and we can't ignore it. So let's talk about it. In an article titled, Australia's Biggest City is Starting to Live with COVID and Asia Will Be Watching by Ben Westcott, a CNN global correspondent. It was written today on October 11th at 12.24 a.m. It, it goes on to talk about how Sydney as of today in Australia emerges from a strict lockdown that they've been in since June because of a Delta variant outbreak and what it means for their for their for their citizens and how that affects them. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about Sydney having that long of a lockdown period and what you think about their new policy that they have where if you're fully vaccinated which is more than 70% of the city, you're allowed to return to restaurants, bars, and gyms. But if you're not, you're not allowed to. Well, first and foremost, I've said from the very beginning that I think the United States really should have adopted some of the policies that New Zealand and Australia did when it came to tackling COVID because they essentially were able to nip COVID in the bud pretty early because they did take it seriously and they did react to it aggressively. And as the public health crisis that it really was, um, to that point, I think it's a really good idea to tackle it this aggressively. I think at some point it's going to have to come down to just the fact that if any of us ever want to return to life as we had it before COVID, we're going to have to take it seriously and we're going to have to take things that might seem a little more aggressive or that might, you know, look like they're approaching it more head on than we have before. And I think it would actually be a really good thing for us to do here because I know President Biden's been, um, issuing vaccine mandates for federal employees or companies that employ, I think more than a hundred employees at a time. And I think that's great, but I think we probably should have done it earlier. And I think if we would have enforced strict lockdowns from the beginning, we really wouldn't be in the mess we are now. Um, but yeah, I mean, the only way you can really address a global health crisis like this is aggressively and you can't take it lightly because it's a serious issue that's killed what? Almost 700,000 people in this country alone. What do you think? What's your opinion? So I I also, I agree with the mandates of literally everything that you just said. I just don't know if an aggressive approach would have been the right process because, you know, when we started this uh, over here in America and as, as well as in Europe, like specifically London, the UK area, Black Lives Matter was in full swing. And I feel that anything aggressive would have been counterproductive to Black Lives Matter more so than it already was because there was a really harrowing series of pictures where a bunch of a bunch of people who were white were talking about I have a right to get my hair cut or I can't breathe in this mask or things like that juxtaposed with black people just fighting for their right to exist in a space with similar not obviously no 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 black lives matter protests had a haircut 
bored, but <laughs> it like the juxtaposition of those photos and how one side of the country was fighting for something they felt like they were entitled to versus a side of the country feeling like they were fighting for just a right to live. It 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 would have done something hurtful more than helpful where we started, but now more than anything, I think it's a good way to do it, even though, because I, I've personally experienced COVID happening in my own life, not to myself, because I, I've taken extreme precautions, but, you know, my parents recently got it, and just the views that I've seen them have on it, even after having the virus, is kind of baffling, and when you have a mentality like that, I'm just not sure aggression would work. I'm not sure anything would work, to be honest with you. I agree with that. I think the thing about the spirit of activism is that it's really existed in some of the most tumultuous times that the country's ever been through. The civil rights era, I mean, it wasn't exactly a peaceful time between anybody in the country, and they found a way to persist even in the face of, you know, police brutality and police opposition, even political opposition with presidents like Nixon, um, who obviously were not supporters of the civil rights movement. The thing about being politically active and the thing about fighting for a cause you're really passionate in is that you're gonna do it no matter what people are telling you. So I don't necessarily think that the biggest deterrent to the Black Lives Matter movement would have been COVID restrictions because in some cities it was early what, uh, May? Yes. Right, so the thing about that was that was still early in COVID. And I mean, we still had the lockdowns and restrictions in cities all across the country and it didn't stop them then. What it would have done though, what it it really would have decentivized things like going out to get a haircut or going out to eat when you really didn't have to or having 200, 300 people in a grocery store when it really couldn't handle that much. No one would have ever said, don't be politically active and don't go out and you know, stand for what you believed in. And even if they did, they still would have done it because that was a cause we were all passionate in. But I do think if we would have handled it aggressively from the very beginning, we really wouldn't have had to go on for months and months and months. We would have kind of nipped it in the bed early on. I agree. I agree. I agree. Uh, we certainly got deep this week. Always. You know, I'm a very insightful individual. And <laughs> that's what I hope to contribute. <laughs> on the podcast, absolutely. Off the podcast, I can't say I agree. Right. I contribute nothing outside of the podcast. But here... This is my one forum. Here in this space, <laughs> I choose to exist. I matter here. That's what I want everybody to listen to. I matter here. <laughs> yes, you do matter here. And everybody else matters here as well. And everybody else's political opinion, so long as it's not hurtful or detrimental to each other, matters as well. And, and guys, I want you to remember that civil discourse can happen anywhere from your backyard all the way to on the street with just a random stranger passing by. But just remember to keep it cute and we'll see you next time. Exactly. Go up to people in the grocery store and ask them what they think about politics. Just right there at Walmart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Civil Discourse. Damien and I had a great time making it for you. We hope you had a great time listening to it. I just wanted to remind you that this is brought to you by our very own GHG Student Support Services. And in case you weren't already aware, they provide free academic, career, and personal counseling. You know, when I started as a freshman here at GHC, I had no idea where to go, what I wanted to do. I, I thought I wanted to do nursing, but I was really passionate about teaching. And I set up a meeting with an academic advisor through my GHC student portal. 
for these student services that really helped me figure it out and figure out that, you know, secondary education was where I was meant to be and what I wanted to do in life. And I know they can do that for you guys too. So be sure to check them out. And thanks so much guys and have a great day.